You're listening to the Vinnie Eastwood Show on AmericanFreedomRadio.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, one and all. Um, even the cops and the NSA and FBI and, 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 and CIA and, and Mossad agents that are listening in, welcome to you guys as well, because I'm sure that you enjoy your jobs, you know, killing, murdering, raping, pillaging, running drugs and and uh, injecting uh, heroin and, and uh, LSD into people's eye sockets in order to discredit them when they get in front of political speeches and what have you. So I hope you'll enjoy this show too, because we also have a very sick sense of humour. My very special guest today... Uh, is William Ramsey. William, welcome to the program. Great, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about who it is you are and what it is you do. Well, basically, I am a uh, 9-11 researcher. I was uh, interested in 9-11 since around uh, 2004 when I realized that uh, it was an inside job. And uh, so I I pretty much read everything I, I could, and I recognized probably within a year or two that there were some deeper... Uh, occult uh, meanings hidden within the event that were not really disclosed, certainly not disclosed by the mainstream media and didn't seem to be emphasized by other researchers. So it led me to uh, really do a lot of reading, and uh, I put a book together called Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and uh, the New World Order, which my general thesis is that his uh, ideas and uh, kind of his own self-made religion influenced the events of 9-11. In, in what way? Well, it's a good question. Uh, essentially, to, to figure out how that influenced the event is really, it's, it's important to recognize who he was as a person. He was uh, an elitist. He attended Cambridge in England. He was born in 1875 and died in 1947. But he had an elitist sensibility, but he was also uh, involved in, in, in magic uh, of, of kind of the blackest stripe. And uh, that led him to a lot of magical fraternities, uh, namely the Golden Dawn, which was a late 19th century magical fraternity in England, and also the OTO and his own, he uh, developed his own magical fraternity, the AA. And he had a very, uh, he believed that his ideas should be uh, instituted in a political sensibility. Uh, He believed that the best uh, political system was actually the feudal system based upon patriarchy. So he had a very male-centric uh, feudal, and I think that you can see this kind of uh, push towards feudalism, uh, at least since 9-11, certainly, but maybe over the last 30 or 40 years with all these types of international banking regulations, NAFTA, etc. But uh, anyway, so he, uh, he, he, he emphasized certain numbers. Uh, essentially, his, one of his more important numbers was the number 11. It goes back to... Uh, a book written by one of the founders of the Golden Dawn, William Wynn Westcott. It was called uh, Numbers, Their Mystical Value. And 11 was seen as this kind of number that emphasized death and destruction. And uh, what led me to understand that these number, that the, the events of 9-11 had these numbers included in them. They were 11, 77, 93, and 175. And I kept seeing them over and over. I didn't really understand their meaning at the time, but after I saw them over and over, I realized that they were there for a reason. They weren't, you know, uh, random, or they weren't there by uh, by any type of chance. And uh, so, uh, essentially, eleven, you know, was uh, an important number to Crowley, as well as seventy-seven. Ninety-three was a very important number in his ideology. He, he believed in the the power of the will, much like Adolf Hitler. Uh, and under his Kabbalist, under under the Kabbalah, which is uh, 
kind of an old Jewish mystical text, there was this notion of gematria where words have a meaning that can be transliterated into numbers. And uh, so the will and uh, basically adds up to 93, and that was the number of the plane. So to make a long to make a long story short, those numbers were, were uh, essentially capitalistic numbers that were important to Crowley. And I think that, you know, in my book, it shows that his kind of ideology, uh, at least I make that argument, influenced the, the September 11 events. Okay. Okay. Well, I like the idea of uh, uh, numerology, and that, that seems to be used a lot. And, and you're talking about um, magic. Now, a lot of people don't think magic exists, unless they've fallen in love, of course. Uh, and uh, what I find interesting is that regardless of whether or not you believe magic exists, the occultists really do believe it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I really didn't know anything about magic. I mean, I, I, I found my way into researching magic from 9-11. I really wasn't... I had a very topical kind of deep understanding from maybe cultural figures, uh, rock stars, and, and things like that. But you're right; these people really do believe it. In the Golden Dawn, there was, uh, you know, a William Butler Yeats, who's a famous poem poet, uh, poetry kind of genius, who was who was an associate of Crowley. Crowley he derived all of his what he considered his genius from the practice of magic. And Crowley himself, I mean, even up until his latter days, people would visit him in his 70s, and he was still a believer his whole life in all of these things of magic, the tarot cards, uh, throwing of dice. He believed in, in astral travel. He believed in in all kinds of things. And, and people uh, who knew Crowley saw these events, and he himself really was trying to break down the kind of doors of perception into to, to realize and to enter other dimensions. And people who were around Crowley said that he had some some form of power, whether it was charismatic or something, but he was definitely... It a, sounds like psychopathy to me. Psychopaths are incredibly enchanting individuals who are capable of manipulating other people by reading them and then doing basically whatever it is that you're looking for. A psychopath figures out what it is that makes you tick and then exploits it so that they can use you. Well, I think that that was a, a pattern in Crowley's life. He was he was been, he was blessed with a, quite a bit of money that he received from his father when he, his father passed away, and he abused that. But yeah, he used that up by the time he was about thirty five, thirty seven, and for the rest of his life, all he did is essentially try to find people to sponge off and use. And he had a long line of people that he he basically used up and cast aside. He he was always looking for money. Uh, he had women who he used for his magical experiments that essentially he would uh, leave leave as, as as fast as he could. Some killed themselves, some became prostitutes, some one actually ended up insane in an institution for thirty years. So he was he had a long history of psychopathy. Well, in that case, it's absolutely no wonder um, that he wanted to get into the occult. I mean, is there a connection there between having a no conscience and wanting to have um, almost unlimited power? I think I think that's kind of what what, what gets uh, people like deep occultists like Crowley. They crave power for some reason, and it, it, it's, it's almost like. Psychopathy means that you, you don't have any self-value, you don't have any self-worth uh, 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 to a degree because you don't know, you don't know what emotions are, you, you can't feel them. All that life is about, uh, uh, it looks to me, 
um, from my research is that basically everybody else is your tools and you're the builder. You don't have any emotional attachment to any of these tools and you don't actually have any emotional attachment to the thing that you're building. But at the same time, you wouldn't be doing it. You wouldn't be lacing up your tools. You wouldn't be starting to build that house or whatever unless it was worth your while. My question is... What did he want, really? What was, what, was, what was Crowley really, really wanting to accomplish with uh, all this occult research, magic, and what have you? Well, I think that's, that's an excellent question. I think what he really wanted was Godhead. He considered himself a prophet, kind of like an Old Testament prophet. He really believed that he was a prophet of a new age and of a new religion. Uh, he, he went back to Egyptology and claimed that he was a prophet of the age of Horus, the hawk-headed god of uh, old Egyptology, and that uh, the, the era of Osiris was over, which was the old age. And uh, he, he developed this kind of notion that he was a prophet for hidden masters, which were these spiritual beings that uh, other magicians had, had, had a relationship to, uh, such as Blavatsky or his, his, uh, his particular hero was this person by the name of McGregor Mathers. McGregor Mathers was a uh, the, the primary magician of the Golden Dawn. But I think that to answer your question, you know, essentially what people like him really want is the primacy of the will and the primacy of themselves as the center of really the universe. I mean, uh, they believe that they... So is it that classic... Selfish, sorry. So basically it's that classic... Uh, detaching yourself from the human condition via psychopathy and then wanting to take it to its next logical conclusion, which is godhood. Yeah, I mean, I think that he thought of himself as a god. He encouraged other people to think of themselves as gods. And, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a contempt for other people. I mean, he said that, you know, he wrote a 927-page magnum opus uh, autobiography called Confessions. And he said on the intro, he said, I have no motive for deception because I don't give a damn for the whole human race. You're nothing but a pack of cards. So, you know, he had that mentality of he was different. He also was an elitist. It's very important to see him and, and as a similar figure to other people, the elites that run the world today, is that he grew up at the very uh, apex of the British Empire. When the Britain, you know, the sun never shone, uh, set on the British Empire, and he had that mentality of ruling over, you know, that, that, that was shared by the British Empire, ruling over everybody. And uh, you can kind of see that played out right now in the, this kind of new world order, which is essentially kind of an old world order, you know, reborn. Well, is that what happens, basically? I, I find that when ideas get old enough, people forget about them. And then when they returned, they think those ideas are new. They think they're revolutionary, that kind of thing. Was this guy trying to bring back something from uh, ancient Egypt or something like that into the modern day or, or, or something of that nature? Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great, great point. I mean, I think that just like the New World Order, people are surprised what this is happening when it's happened in different eras. You know, Hitler had his own idea of a New World Order, and uh, the British Empire had its own idea, and Crowley definitely had his own idea. And he tried to bring these ideas back from... Uh, you know, his, his kind of religion was based upon things in the past, whether it was the, the, the Golden Dawn was a hodgepodge of all kinds of ideas, whether it was the roads of Crucians, Egyptian and Greek mythology, uh, magic, 
they they were they were really kind of updating it. and then Crowley took that and upgraded it himself with his own writings and and um, so I think that he was definitely going back into the past. He was a, an admirer of the Hellfire Club, which was a late. 18th century club, which was very influential in the running of the, the British Empire at that time, and uh, m- many of the central figures uh, that the American colonies went to war against were members of this Hellfire Club. Uh, Crowley made his own kind of Hellfire Club in Cefalu, uh Sicily in 1920 that uh, you know he essentially led to him being expelled from Italy. But, uh, yeah, so he used the past and he put it into his own uh, kind of Mold, and he said that he was writing for a hundred years in, in the future. He was essentially a literateur. I mean, he was a writer, but he spent tons. He had uh, secretaries and writers writing for him all the time. He had correspondence with many known figures. I emphasize in my book his relationship to people such as Somerset Maugham, H. L. Mencken. Uh, what kind of access did he have? Like. Access is power, right? And and uh, I, at the moment, I'm, I'm recalling uh, some of the Freighter X was telling me that he went into all these different uh, occult orders and went down into their libraries with old tomes that hadn't been looked at in a hundred years and, and and things like that. And he's and he's he's found out a lot of incredible information that nobody else really even bothered to look for. Was was Crowley kind of like that? Was somebody who had access to uh, big libraries that no, normal people would never even bother going to, let alone want to? Well, I go back to Mathers. He, Mathers was kind of like this organizer for the Golden Dawn. He had actually pulled out old tombs that had not been looked at for a long time. One was called the Goetia, which is a kind of magical record of um, you know, the 72 demons that King Solomon, David's son, was uh, in contact with. And uh, these came out of the British Museum. There was also... Uh, something called a Bramel in the major it was a it was a magical book that uh Crowley decided to you know partake in it was a magical working that he uh reserved his he bought a house up in Loch Ness it was called Bulliskin House that Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin eventually owned but uh you know so they were pulling up kind of old things and dusting off old ideas and and repackaging them and popularizing them again Okay, okay. Well, it, it seems like the whole dominion of Earth, he wants to bring it back. The question is, what was in control of the planet at the time that he's trying to reinvent and bring back? Well, what He do you wants mean? a new world order, but, but it's not his idea. He got the idea from somewhere else, and he's trying to fulfill um, a, a rebirth of that old order. What, what what was that old order that that, that had uh, rule over the planet so long ago? Well, I think that for him, he he wanted a new order of magic. I mean, I think that that's what he was looking for. His, his idea was he had he had kind of given up on. He had grown up in a in an old Christian, uh, you know, essentially a a, a a Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren, which he he found to be very stultifying. And so for him, he was going to, you know, rebirth this kind of occult world. And for him, he said, the forces of good were those that constantly oppressed me. I saw them daily destroying the happiness of my fellow men, since therefore it was my business to explore the spiritual world. My first step must be to get into personal communication with the devil. 
Whoa. Okay, well, let's talk about personal communication with the devil after the break. A very special guest, William Ramsey. Prophet of evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order is the topic of discussion. We'll be right back, folks. To the devil to his uh, prison master. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you listen to the Vinny Eastwood Show on AmericanFreedomRadio.com. It's the lighter side of genocide, because in a world so full of chaos and madness, if you lose your sense of humour, you'll go friggin' nuts. And we had uh, two questions in the chat room, which can be answered. One was, what is the significance uh, to Alistair Crowley and his followers with the number nine? And the second question was, is Barbara Bush, the uh, wife slash mistress slash uh, 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 demon spawn producing wife of, of, of Poppy Bush, HW uh, 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 drug dealing Bush, was she an illegitimate child of Alistair Crowley? Well, I, the answer to the first question, number nine, there was a place in London at number nine Mansfield Street where uh, followers of Crowley would meet. Uh, Crowley kept all of his literature there. Uh, one of the primary followers of, of Crowley at that time in the late 20s and early 30s was a gentleman by the name of Gerald York, and uh, he was a uh, scion of a very wealthy British family. Crowley usually drew his followers from the educated class, educated and, and landed classes of, of Britain, People who graduated from Oxford or Cambridge, like Crowley, graduated from Cambridge, and uh, anyway, they were religious so, like him. In other words, correct. I mean, he, his view—he had a very uh, elitist view of uh, you know what to do and and how to obtain followers. He he really did not. Uh, he was not a populist. He did not have a populist sensibility at all. He believed that you know people should be. Um, he, 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 his idea was to kind of, he would say, you want to polish the diamonds and, and ignore the muck of the mind as kind of a, a generalization of his, his yeah, position. Yeah. But uh, as far as the number nine, you know, that was, it, it was a location in England, whether that had something to do with kind of the Beatles. He definitely influenced the Beatles. He was on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And uh, he was on there at John Lennon's. Uh, it was really John Lennon's idea. And, um, you know, apparently there, there's there been talk that Sergeant Pepper was actually uh, Alistair Crowley. Uh, in the intro to Sergeant Pepper's, he says, it's 20 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play, and that was 20 years uh, from the date that Crowley died in 1947. So uh, as far as the number nine, you know, there are definitely some, some interest. Crowley was into numbers. He believed that everything could be defined by, you know, the universe was defined by numbers. And uh, so when he drew up his magical system, he would refer to everything as like uh, number nine, number 11. And so he had certain rituals that were attached to each one of those numbers. Uh, he said, the fundamentals of mathematics are the basis of the Kabbalah. It is natural and proper to represent the cosmos or any part of it or any operation of it or the operation of any part of it by symbols of pure mathematics. So, you know, 9, 11, and any any addition of 11 was very important to Crowley. So you had his child sacrifice was uh, book 66, which, uh, you know, most of his followers would never let the public know about. But uh, if you look up book 66, and then he had a book 77, which he called Libra Oz. Oz to him and his system was uh, commensurate to 77. And then Libra Oz was... Uh, basically, what he thought the rot was the rights of man. Uh, 
the you know he believed the law of the strong. This is our law, the law of the world. And at the end of book seventy seven, he says, you know, you can do whatever you want. Essentially, that was commensurate with his idea, which is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Uh, that's eleven uh, words, eleven syllables. So he believed in that. And uh, at the end of Liber seventy seven, he said, it has the right to kill those who would thwart these rights. So book sixty six and book seventy seven are. Uh, you know, if you want to get into really what the heart of this person was like, uh, it could be worth reading. Anyway, so that's a long analysis of the number nine. Uh, next, well, one. yeah, and and also, I, I asked you a question. I was kind of joking, but but almost not. Uh, the with numbers and everything like that, it, it, it strikes me as something um, chemical. Like there's uh, numbers for all the uh, elements on the periodic table. Uh, there's numbers involved with uh, the structure of all kind of um, uh, cells. And uh, basically, numbers are everything. Everything's built on math upon math upon math upon math. So understanding the, uh, the power of numbers and things like that, I can, I can understand. The, the question I have, though, is... Uh, do other people actually appreciate it? Is there, is there some kind of transmutational process with the use of numbers or, 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 or chemical or alchemy or, or, or something of that, like, like love potion number nine or, or, or whatever? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know that they, like people like Crowley and magicians really are into numerology. Uh, the Kabbalah is heavily much, uh, you know, is very numerologically based and... You know, that's something that most magicians really go back to is the Kabbalah. They just love it. And uh, so, you know, I think that he is right. I mean, you know, there are truths within even his his vast opus and his what he believed in. I do believe that numbers can't explain a lot of the world. I mean, you're right. I, I think that it's just so, it's something that's been excised from maybe Western ideals or, or people who don't, don't, don't appreciate well, I think- I think more it's just turned into the opposite like uh, that that's the um the main one of the main tenets of uh, satanism is to be able to hide or create things by taking what exists and turning it on its head making it opposite like six becomes nine or or, or whatever Some, something like that they believe that in, in in doing things the the opposite way round that they channel instead of the positive energy of things being the right way around that they channel the negative energy things of that nature no that's a good point so you know i think that uh you know, duality is a very important concept in, in general magic. And there are notions of the macrocosm and the microcosm, the uh, pentagram and the hexagram. The pentagram represents the, the microcosm, and the hexagram is the macrocosm. You add those two together, you get 11, by the way. But, uh, you know, even, even in Crowley's system, the number 11 wasn't just a number. It was an ideogram. It represented duality. It represented two opposing forces. So... You know, that's kind of like when you see that number 11 or even the Twin Towers, that's kind of the occult meaning of the Twin Towers. It's a giant. Well, that's that's true, because uh, um, in Freemasonry, uh, there are these two pillars that were outside Solomon's temple called Jackin and Boaz. And essentially, they were a, um, a gateway that you had to pass through. You had to um, basically incorporate both the positive and the negative in order to um, excise any form of uh, control and be able to enter the temple. Uh, this is also the reason behind uh, Freemasons having uh, black and white Masonic floors. It's the white and the black and the dark and the light, and they believe that they control both. And that's part of the duality, and it's a very, very deep principle within a lot of occult circles. 
Yeah, well said. And it's also the black and white is, you know, that we walk over good and evil too, you know, so that are above it, which is, you know, basically uh, kind of a, you know, my, my powers above right and wrong. It's, it's a, Maybe goes back to Nietzsche even before that. But uh, anyway, you know. Barbara Bush. I'm sorry. Barbara Bush. Let me just say one more thing. Numbers there are Cold Power Mystic Virtue by William Wynn Westcott. It's probably worthwhile taking a look at if you want to just see where, where, you know, these guys drew their ideas on and where he, Westcott, got his ideas. Anyway, so Barbara Bush, the story about the rumor about Barbara Bush is that she is the illegitimate offspring of Aleister Crowley from a magical uh, ritual that took place in France uh, in the mid-20s, 1924-1925. Okay, so how so, old is Barbara now? Oh, good question. Well, she's got to be in her 70s. I know her husband is 87. She She's probably in her 80s. She, uh, so she was definitely like at, um, uh, at maturity by the time Crowley died. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that her and her husband, George Bush, uh, got married right after the war, so it was 46, 47. Now, George Bush at the time was a tire salesman, um, and Barbara's family, I, I forget what her original uh, maiden name was or anything of that nature, Pierce. but Pierce. Barbara's family was uh, was heavily into banking. Uh, oh, no, 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 it was, it was Prescott Bush that I'm thinking of, actually, uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush's father. Right. Mm. He was the tire salesman, and then when he married uh, wh- whoever it was that he married, um, she was into uh, big banking circles and whatever, and he wound up the head of a, uh, a major bank in uh, New York that, that laundered Nazi gold and uh, um, sent all the resources away to Nazi Germany, like uh, 30% of their explosives and like 20% of their pig iron plate and such, such like that. It basically played a huge role in trading with the enemy. And then his uh, child, George H.W. Bush, is off fighting World War II uh, and basically comes back, becomes president, his son becomes president, and, and, and you start to wonder, you know, all the blood is mixed together. That It can't be coincidence that all these people wind up in positions of power after being born to parents who are in positions of power. It can't be coincidence. Agreed. And these, you know, the elitists and, and people like that, they have a different kind of uh, regimen whereby where they get married and, and their relationships with others. The marriage between George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush has all the whiffs of an arranged marriage. I mean, they had met very early. She was 16. He was 18. His father was on the board of... Uh, essentially Planned Parenthood at that time. He's Prescott Bush was an associate of Margaret Sanger. So they, you know, believe in the best breed but she was the she was the founder of uh, Planned Parenthood or was it the American Eugenics Society it was originally called I think it's originally called that, yeah, but it became Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So anyway, I mean there he was on the board. So you can I have uh, you know evidence that shows that and that was in Kitty Kelly's book uh, about the Bush family. But to go back to Barbara Bush, essentially what Crowley was up to was he had developed his magical rituals from the Golden Dawn, but he had he went down a far darker path than some of the older Golden Dawn people, whereby he started experimenting with drugs and then moved into sexual magic. And so he he really pushed uh, the limits on that. He had this was when he had been kicked out of Italy. Uh, in, the twi- in 1924, one of the, the editors of uh, Vanity Fair, the same magazine that's around today, 
was a person by the name of Frank Harris. And, you know, it's important to remember that time. It's like this is the Roaring Twenties, but this is also the Belle Epoch. This is kind of the golden age of the Parisian cultural scene where artists and writers were all going there. Rodin, Hemingway, all these people were there in this in this era, and Crowley was attracted to that. He was always involved in Bohemia. He uh, had those ta- that sensibility to be around those types of people. Anyway, so uh, Barbara Bush's mother was by a person by the name of Pauline Robinson, and she apparently the story is is that she had a little bit of a wild streak, and she wanted to be part of that scene too. And she had a meeting with. Uh, Frank Harris's girlfriend at the time, who was somebody by the name of Nellie O'Hara. Well, Crowley's Sex Magical Prize is laid out in D-Art Magica, D-E-A-R-T-E Magico. His idea was something called, uh, it was it's essentially a form, he, he would, I mean, I'm trying to put this in a polite manner, he would have servitors who would help him in his ritual that would put him into a kind of a coma state. And it's rumored that she was part of it. I could never find evidence of it. Uh, but there's no doubt that Crowley, Harris, and o- O'Hara were together in Paris at that time in 1924. Whether uh, Robinson was there or not, I couldn't find evidence of it. But the story is that she became pregnant with Crowley. And Crowley, the, the fact, the reality is Crowley had like four kids that were known uh, that made it to adulthood that he really didn't care much about. So he was not averse to having children out of wedlock or just being a, a kind of a, a father to whoever wanted it. He had somebody come up to him late in life and who was 19 when he was like in his 67 and said, I want you to have my baby. And he said, okay. So he had uh, a son called Ataturk, uh, Alistair, Ataturk Crowley, who uh, was about seven by the time Crowley died. But, you know, so Crowley had tons of kids. So it's not out. this wasn't somebody who would have shied away from that. But uh, that's the, that's the the rumor, and it hasn't been confirmed. But essentially, there are other tie-ins to Crowley and to Crowley's system, the magical system in the Bush family. Uh, that tie-in is that I mean, she's a hardball. Or uh, Barbara Bush is a, as known as a notorious, cruel person. She had actually said something on Larry King, uh, which is you know a big talk show host. I don't know if you guys get him down there, but oh yeah, uh, I know Larry King. I, in fact. Um I, I model this show slightly on the Larry King show because, okay. um, like Larry King, I don't do any research on my guests before I interview them. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, she had said she had said something uh, to Larry King. She was on his show. I think it was in '03, October '03, and to make a long story short. She said, "She said you can criticize me, but don't criticize my children, and don't criticize my daughters-in-law, and don't criticize my husband." Or you're dead. So she had said that on Holy. Yeah, she said that on TV, and there's there's records of it out there. So she's a tough oh anyway. So the tie-in to the Bush family is like I said. These whoa, no- whoa, whoa, whoa! That's actually another element of psychopathy as well. They don't actually care about anybody, and they don't really have any emotions. But if you mess with their family in any way, shape, or form, you heaven help you. Oh yeah, that's no. basically the that's basically the uh, the modus operandi. Have you noticed that um, what happens is basically you have two psychopaths for parents, they produce psychopathic offspring, and they always wind up being incredibly successful because they learn from their psychopathic successful parents how to manipulate others and how to get away with everything and all their crimes and everything. I mean, this is how your presidents are literally made 
and selected. Do they come from the bloodline? Oh, yes, they do. Do they have any emotions or any conscience or anything like that? Well, no, no, they don't. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have to make them El Presidente then because, after all, you'd never be able to lie to people without people knowing you're lying to them unless you were a psycho with no emotions or, or giving a flying frack about anybody else but yourself. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, at the Vinnie Eastwood Show. Dot com. I have this feeling, man, because you know there's a handful of people actually run everything. That's true. It's provable. Handful, very small elite run and own these corporations, which include the mainstream media. I have this feeling who's ever elected president, like Clinton was, no matter what your promises you promise on the campaign trail, blah, 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 when you win, you go into this smoky room with the 12 industrialist, capitalist scum who got you in there, and you're in this smoky room in this little... Uh, uh, film uh, screen comes down and a big guy in a cigar roll the film and it's a shot of a Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before that looks suspiciously off uh, the grassy knoll and then the film the screen goes up and the lights come up and they go to the new president any questions? Uh, just what my agenda is First, we bomb Baghdad. You got it. <laughs> and incidentally, the VinnieEastwoodShow.com. I'm not Superman because I'm not Alistair Crowley and think I'm a god. <laughs> okay, my very special guest is William Ramsey. And we were talking about um, uh, Barbara Bush over the break as well. And um, it, it's actually, when you look at the situations, like let's say, for instance, just my situation, now, I'm a really creative uh, and hard-working guy, um, but I actually don't really have uh, much foundation or independence, okay? In fact, part of my, um, well, basic life is that the women in my life have always been my rock, and, and I've tried to be theirs, and you, and you have those, um, a very reciprocal relationship, and it makes you stronger together. I'll be the creative one who goes out and does all this stuff. But if I did not have somebody behind me, I would only be able to accomplish, well, basically half as much, I think. And that's not entirely dissimilar from the relationships between uh, men and women and psychopathic relationships like, let's say, Poppy Bush and Barbara Bush. She seemed to be the rock that was uh, behind uh, Poppy the whole time. And he seemed to be the one going out and uh, being in the public eye and uh, doing all this big business and, and what have you. But without her, he'd be nothing. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think that, uh, you know, they've been together for a long time. And I think their relationship, was, you know, um, it's really, really something unusual in the whole history of, of the United States when you consider how much George Bush has really been involved in. I mean, he arguably has been running the United States uh, since 1980. I mean, he's been involved in almost everything, running Reagan, his own presidency, his, uh, you know, uh, Clinton was essentially his, he handled Clinton as a CIA agent when Clinton was in, in England. And, uh, you know, it's uh, then his son. So, you know, this is a guy who really should be studied. He's kind of like an American Caesar, and he's been involved in so many, so many things for over the last 30, 40 years, whether it's financial issues and uh, wars, assassinations. I mean, it's really incredible. Let's talk about something that you might not want to talk about then. 
you know, now we all self-censor a little bit. There's certain parts of uh, uh, these things that we do, these things that we know that we don't want to uh, sort of talk about for one reason or another because we think we might be judged for it or people might think we're crazy for even saying it or even approaching the subject. So if you have anything along those lines, just, just keep it on the back burner for a second and uh, if, you, if anything springs to mind, here's the place to say it. Well, I mean, I, I don't have... I mean, I, I my... my essential view is that Crowley was influenced these people uh, and I think that they tagged him by having those numbers 117793 and even the, I mean essentially the Bush people are associated and affiliated with the Rockefellers and um, you know I think that the Rockefellers were the ones who built those two buildings and uh, 9-11 was clearly to me an inside job but it also had those occult uh, markers and elements to it, and uh, it was it was very ambitious as well. I mean, they really wanted to create kind of a new world system uh, using the uh, bogus excuse of terrorism to uh, create an uh, entirely new kind of global order, and uh, also false flag terror, which was another part. I mean, a lot of the false flag terror that happened all around the world was also uh, structured by the intelligence agencies. Um, you know, whether it happened in Indonesia. Or the seven seven. I mean, the interesting thing is there's seven seven again, which is an important number uh, when you see flight seventy seven that happened in nine um, eleven or seven seven bombings in London. Those were totally fake as well, and but they had occult markers. Uh, so uh, you know, there's a part of my book where I go into where you know these are, these Illuminists. You know, the Illuminati still kind of exists as far as uh, you know, not in the same same structure is uh wise how put together but the same ideology and you know people picking up that torch so to speak and and walking with it uh still cruelly himself called he called himself the esdras of the illuminati uh esdras is a, a seldom used word but what it meant is that the defender of the illuminati he stated he he was uh very vindictive and nasty and he was also an intelligent intelligence agent but uh you know, it's kind of a tangent. We can talk about that too. But you know, essentially, uh, there is a secret, and you know, this is just one element of the secrecy of these people. They're into a doctrine of silence. But uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, my book just focused on kind of a religious occult that's non-Christian uh, and uh, its influence on the events of nine eleven. Okay. Well. I understand that there's a lot of people that are in very influential positions today who draw on Crowley's uh, works and things of that nature in order to use what he figured out in order to advance themselves in this day and age. What I want to know is, what do people actually have to gain from Crowley's quote-unquote wisdom? Well, I think uh, the standard things that people want, which is money, power, uh, intellectual uh, power, and the force that he provides, the, the the notion of unleashing your full potential. But for Crowley, it was always selfish. You know, the ma- magician's essentially at the center of the universe. The his definition is the art. And, the definition of magic is the art and science of creating uh, change within the world in conformance with your own will, and. Uh, you know, so I think it would be the standard individual human will, um, you know, desires of uh, individuals is what would be attractive to 
to followers of Crowley. And it's also his idea of freedom. He had a kind of a perverse idea of personal freedom, whereby, you know, doing what you will is totally free and you can do whatever you want and you don't have to worry about other people or what you do or your effects upon the world. So it's very selfish and, you know, people who are greedy or, uh, you know, are looking for the satisfaction of, of, you know, their desires find something interesting in Crowley. Is that... I'm not sure what to say here because I'm trying to figure out exactly how okay they can they can use it. I mean, we know about the whole um, idea about of um, illumination, okay, which is to unlock your potential, discard your own doubts about yourself, and uh, instill basically this the sense of uh, godlike elitism, right? That that's basically what I what I've seen um, occult circles uh, preaching and practicing is that other people are of less value than me, and ergo, I am more powerful, and then it gives them confidence, supreme confidence, to go out and do whatever they want, regardless of the consequence. And as a direct result, a lot of these people become um, high-level criminals, basically. Right. Yeah. right? That, that, that's the criminal code, is it not? Yeah, and I think uh, Crowley's code is an elite code. I think that Satanism in general is an elite code. Uh, Crowley believed, you know, in his his Libra 77 that the slave shall serve. I mean, he repeated that often, is that he had this, uh, you know, this notion that, uh, you know, we're gods and we're elitists and everybody else is there to serve us. He, he said incredible things uh, about, um, you know, what other people should do. He really thought that there was a wolf and sheep kind of uh, mentality out there. I mean, I can read you this. He said... And this is his commentary. He, his primary book was the Book of the Law, which he supposedly received from this being called Awas in 1904 in Egypt. Uh, he also had this stele that he saw at the Bulak Museum, which is now the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It was Stella 666 that he adopted as his uh, kind of mantelpiece for his, his rituals, uh, which he called the Gnostic Mass. I mean, he had a variety of different rituals. One of the main rituals is also Ritual 175, which is which God you adore, you see Flight 175 and uh, the event of 9-11. But he said about other people, about ignorant managed masses, he said, uh, we should not insist on trying to train sheep to hunt foxes or lecture on history. We look after their physical well-being and enjoy, the wool, enjoy their wool and mutton. In this way, we shall have a contented class of slaves who accept the conditions of existence as they really are and enjoy life with the quiet wisdom of the cattle. So... He essentially believed in kind of hurting, uh, you know, humanity, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like that kind of H.G. Uh, Wells story about, uh, you know, that uh, what is it, the Morlocks and the the Eloy, where they were farming humanity. Curly kind of had that mentality, and Hitler kind of adopted that mentality as well. If you take an overlap of Curly's ideology and Hitler's ideology, they're but didn't they belong to like some of the same clubs or so, or, or some or societies or so? what was the Vril There's Society was it? Yeah, the the, the Tula Society, Tula Gesellschaft with Mercury. And my very special guest is William Ramsey, talking about the Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, nine eleven, and the New World Order. And we were talking over the break um, about how. Uh, 
I'm, I'm not sure. In fact, you should probably tell people what, uh, what we're talking about over a break because as an American, you can say it. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a black person can talk about black issues, but a white person can't. Otherwise, he gets demonized or, or, or whatever. It's a similar situation with this one here. Lately, I would say Americans don't get a lot of perspective. Uh, they, they only speak one language if they speak that on one language uh, well at all. I mean, in Texas, they speak less than one language. There's no doubt about that. But uh, so, you know, it, you don't get uh, Americans have a very uh, myopic view of the world and other people and cultures that, you know, be worthwhile for them to get out and travel and, and take a look, go to some other country and, and take a look back at how other people perceive the United States, its foreign policy. And, you know, the sad reality is that Americans really don't have a say at all in the, in the foreign policy of the country. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an unfortunate. I, I think that Americans have no idea how other people perceive them as well in other countries. Um, they, you know, they're kind of like uh, perceived as as the kind of big ornery uh, drunken oaf of the of the world, which is you know, unfortunately, somewhat true. Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh being from New Zealand and uh, no, seeing what other new... Have you noticed that how people, um, if they're talking about somebody else, they very rarely talk about it when that person's around kind of thing? And I think that's why Americans don't know how the rest of the world thinks because we're all talking about them behind their back sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this country, um, at least, and, and I've talked to people from many countries and it seems to be the, the same uh, general theme is that Americans are seen as um, basically suckers. You know, you, you, you can sell anything to them, uh, you can tell anything to them, and not only will they buy it and believe it, but they'll go and they'll tell other people to buy it and believe it as well without so much as a single question uh, being asked. It's, it's, it's almost like um, uh, dogs that are being led uh, by a choke chain and unbeknownst to them, they're, they're wearing a collar and they never even knew it was there. And this type of recognition of just how other people see you, okay, uh, and any of the Americans who are listening to this show, that's how a lot of people ar- around the world think of you, okay? You're, you're a cool, decent, kind-hearted individual who's very generous, aren't you, in general? That's, that's, that's my perspective because I've actually spoken to Americans, okay? And that's how they all are um, on, on, the, on the whole. However, it's, it's overlapped by uh, almost this, this air of gullibility to, to a degree, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that, I mean, look at all the lies that we've been told, at least as Americans, uh, for decades. And it seems like there really hasn't been too much... Uh, pushback by the you know the average person. I think they're starting to wake up, but you know there was a time that you know back in the, the day, like to Tocque, to Tocqueville was the the French uh, kind of noble who traveled around the United States in the early 19th century. Said that we the country back then had the smartest, most educated, well informed people, and we've come a long, long way from that. And I think it's due to you know drugs, fluoridization, bad media. Uh, poor, poor public. Uh, uh, poor but, 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 but as a, as a result, and, and uh, it's it's funny because we're talking about Americans, right? And we've got somebody in the chat room who's saying, "But New Zealanders are exactly the same." And, and this is another interesting point as well: is that 
in every country, we look at every other country as being the problem, and we don't see ourselves as the morons who need to be helped out of this, helped out of the situation, do we? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's easy to to judge somebody else other than yourself. I mean, I, I it's just, it's rough. I mean, I see, you know, I, I, uh, I just see like a lot of zombies, and I, I, they're that zombie meme. I talked to another guy on a on a show a couple weeks ago. It's like. I think that zombie meme has a lot of import because there's so many zombies out there, you know. I think that people have been dumbed down, they've been drugged out. You know, so many people in the United States are on antidepressants, which basically puts you into like a fugue state or some kind of zombie state. We've had like zombie, I don't know if you've been following, but we've had like literal... The bath salt, yeah. What's that? The bath salt incident. Yeah, the bath salters. We've had literal zombie events here. In the last two, three, four weeks, I mean, uh, only in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so rough. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, uh, oh. So anyway, I mean, it, it is interesting how people, and it's. I think that's important of travel. I mean, I think that it really does give you a good idea. Of, oh uh, my god! Another great comment on the on the chat room. Our morons are better than your morons. USA, USA. (laughs) 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 Oh my god! It's so true. It's so true. Oh my god! We're all retarded. <laughs> oh god hey in fact, in fact speaking of morons i was watching the breakfast program this morning on the new zealand tv right and he had a list of the uh the top 15 television programming and, and stuff like that for every country and i shiite muslim you not the top 15 shows in every single western nation was either sport a reality cooking show or like the voice or American idol type variant. Okay. That's the, or soap operas. Those are the only four things that actually make it into the top 15. Don't you think that that's a, a sign of how really messed up people's attention is? Absolutely. I mean, what's really scary. It's like, you know, you try to tell people about some, some very serious political issues and you have no idea what you'll get in return. I mean, I've talked to people literally who I tell the, like, honest-to-God historical truths to uh, based upon facts and evidence that are written in encyclopedias, and they either call me a conspiracy theorist, that's their immediate comeback, or they want to get away because they just are so far out of their comfort zone and having that discussion, it's like they don't, they pause, and you get this kind of blank stare and... Like, I feel uncomfortable, too. Like, whoa, I mean, I didn't know I just pushed you out into the intellectual deep end on this, you know, discussion about when the war and World War II ended or something, you know. Some very topical, very simple stuff. So it's it's unnerving to walk around them. I mean, you got to watch. I don't know what it's like in New Zealand, but around here, I mean, you got to watch what you say to certain people because they literally oh, will. the same. You, it's the same thing. I don't know. I don't watch sports. So people will, like, come up yeah. to me and talk to me. And I'll just be like, I have no idea. And so it's yeah. this, this is a it's a very odd kind of um, invasion of the body snatchers kind of moments that happen 
me daily. Like, I, I really don't know. And But if other people find it important, I, I just, I don't. So anyway, it's a, it's well, a strange... That's, that's why it's impossible to deny that we live in a new world order already, isn't it? Because yeah, uh, I was having a conversation with one of the listeners who's uh, uh, down in Mexico, Rini, and she, she's getting into her older years now. And uh, she moved away from the United States to go to Mexico to get away from the Americanization, as she called it. And now, uh, living in Mexico, she's seeing it pop up everywhere. And I said to her, it's not Americanization at all. Okay? There's no liberty principle. There's no constitutionality behind it. There's no a spirit of liberty or, 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 or uh, creativity or entrepreneurship or anything with this global system. It's a new right. world order system. It's new world orderization. And, that, and that's it, pure and simple. And the United States is being, um, uh, I feel, uh, they're basically the fall guy, okay? We had this uh, finance company called Hewlett Wealth Management here in New Zealand, and it was uh, headed by three people. Uh, Mark Hewlett, or whatever his name is, uh, Don Brash, who's a former Reserve Bank governor, he's like the equivalent of the Federal Reserve, uh, um, Ben Bernanke of New Zealand kind of thing, and another guy, uh, John Banks, who is the former mayor of uh, Auckland, the, the country's largest city, like the, the equivalent of Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. And this, okay. uh, and this company collapsed, okay? Absolutely collapsed, and everybody lost their money, and Mr. Hewlett went to jail, but these other two scum didn't. They didn't even so much as get investigated, charged when they were guilty, clearly, with even the most modicum bit of research that some of the activists in New Zealand have done on this topic. Clearly guilty of the exact same crimes, and yet they get away with it, okay? It's, it's the whole thing. Criminals come in, they get involved with you, and they get you to trust them, and then they use you as their fall guy. And I think that America... It's the Hewlett management fall guy of the world now. They're trying to, the New World Order is trying to get everybody to hate America, to hate Americans. And I think it's because the New World Order really hates America and hates Americans, namely because they've still got guns. They, they're still slightly freer than, than um, a lot of other countries, perhaps. They, they've still got a constitution um, that technically exists, although it's not followed in any way, shape or form. And, and, and that kind of thing. They don't want that. So I think it, there's a deliberate effort through the media, through uh, the history books, and, and everything, basically, <laughs> to make America the fall guy. Do, do you think that that might be true? Yeah, I do. I think that I think that really what they're against is kind of the ideals that built America, which were individualism and... Uh, kind of entrepreneurship and that kind of pioneer spirit. They really hate that and that you can go out and do it on your own. I mean, uh, so I think that it's really the ideals that were really the foundation of America, the kind of John Wayneism, without kind of the, you know, uh, kind of provincialism of John Wayne, I guess, but just like a can-do attitude. They really want you to be a slave uh, in a really simple term. Or they want everybody in the world, and they want to, you know, the ancien, I guess you could say the ancien regime or the ancient regime really likes that uh, pyramidal tiered system of the elites on top and the, the you know, slaves that are there relying on them for food and, and water. I mean, in the United States, you see the, the main entrepreneurship that's taking place and the engine of growth that has been in the country for the last hundred years is taking place in California, where... 
you've got like the global film industry and the the tech industry in the north where there wasn't that kind of uh, social striation. It was kind of like a brand new, you know, pioneer mentality where real talent could shine because in the East Coast they didn't have that mentality. You know, it's all uh, the kind of governmental system and uh, that is. That is the real American spirit, is allowing people's talent to shine. I mean, uh, Danny Romero from American Freedom Radio, I, ca- I came on as a guest host uh, on the on, on a radio show here uh, once, and then he saw my talent and, g- and gave me the show. I think that's what Americans do. They, they like justice. They like seeing uh, people be successful, and, and they're generally kind-hearted and helpful. That, that spirit... That makes yeah, Americans I mean, American is, is being annihilated. People are distrustful of each other and, and, and judgmental and, and this kind of thing, and it's dividing them. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really it. I mean, if you have somebody with an old line, blue blood mentality, there's always that whiff of, uh, you know, they've gotten it easy, I think, from their view, and they really don't like... I've seen people from the East Coast come out to California. I used to work in one of the bigger tech companies, and they have a different mentality, and they're jealous of that can-do mentality. They want to do it their way, and they're happy that they went to Princeton. I know a guy who was from Princeton, and these old East Line, what we call it, you know, the Ivy League company, country, uh, excuse me, colleges, Ivy League colleges. They really do not uh, like the fact that people can just start up their own company and make billions of dollars, you know. They really just don't like it all. Mm, mm, mm. Like Bill so um, coming coming from New York to uh, uh, to LA is really funny. It's like there's there's no weather in in LA. It's just every day hot and sunny. It's like, what are you a lizard? Okay, I'm a mammal. I can afford scarves and coats, cappuccino, rosy cheek women, and all are available for sale. And this type of, of thing is, is quite funny because you've got people who live technically in the same country, yet they're on different sides of it, and they find the little differences, and they only talk about those differences. They only think about those differences. Whereas if you were to shift your focus and think about what actually, what do we have in common? What are our similarities? You'll find more similarities than you can handle. Yeah, I would agree with that. How do we turn this around? I mean... Knowledge of the occult, I think, is actually uh, an important yet uh, very kind of beat down sort of mentality. And it actually is, uh, I feel, so important for people to come to grips with because it allows you to figure out how you have been manipulated by the occultists and what have you. Now, we've got a caller on the line here. Caller, you're uh, probably only going to be um, talking for about 30 seconds before we go to break, so you'll be able to hang on there. But before we go to break, welcome. 